I'm uh, going to be leaving probably sometime Monday on a trip and spend a little time up in the mountains. I feel kind of a need to get away and uh, cogitate on quite a few different things. Uh, our neighbors for one and God's direction for another and some things. So I, I want to get up in the mountains and get away where I can really concentrate on things that could be important for us. We're certainly living in troublous times and it's going to get more troubled. And I think we need to be as close to God and as as we can possibly get uh, during this time. And I want to be able to guide and lead our little flock where God would have us go. <laughs> uh, Ezra comes to mind. Was it Ezra or Nehemiah? I think it's in Ezra where it says we went to seek God and a direction for us and our little ones. Uh, what do we do with ourselves and our children? So uh, I, I feel a need to get away once in a while when I have time to, uh, to concentrate on important things. I, I hate to leave here in a way we have a lot to work to do, but I think uh, this trumps that right now uh, as far as that's concerned. So, uh, I guess that's about all there is to announce. Let's get back to First Peter. We've been approaching this book, the last two sermons, from the standpoint of the hope that lies within us and uh, hoping that we can have a lively hope, was covered last week, uh, he changes the subject a little here in chapter 3. They must have had a feminist movement going on back then uh, within the church and within society or a society that they were coming out of uh, had a feminist approach to things. And that's not unusual in the history of the world. Uh, women have always had trouble subjecting themselves to men uh, it's a natural thing in a way, and yet on the other hand, it's very difficult for any human being to submit to another. And sometimes when men aren't what they ought to be, it makes it even more difficult for women to do that. And that's with all of us. Uh, so, he has a section here. We covered this in quite a bit of detail <coughs> back in uh, the Passover series about our relationship with Christ and, and how uh, human marriage has to do with that as a type of it and that mystery. So I'll go back through this little section fairly quickly here without going into great detail, but uh, he's talking here about us all submitting to Christ above this and going through what he went through and how we take the adversity that comes upon us he didn't speak up. He didn't complain. He accepted uh, what came down on him. So it's a. He says we're returned as sheep that we're going astray <clears throat> to the shepherd and bishop of our souls. And then he says, likewise, you wives. So he's tying this together. Our relationship with Christ and how we react to Him. He's tying together with uh, the marriage here when he says, likewise, or in like manner as we submit to Christ, 
be in subjection to your own husbands, uh, not somebody else's, but your own. Uh, some men think that all women ought to submit to them. <laughs> That's not the case. Uh, you have no obligation to submit to any man other than your husband. That's that's a big enough thing on your platter right there. Uh, I mean, we should all submit ourselves one to another. He makes that clear, and Paul did as well. We, we don't need to be full of vanity and ego and self to the point that we want everybody to do as we want. Uh, we should submit to others. But in a direct relationship... Your, relationship, your responsibility is to your own husband, not somebody else. That if any obey not the word, that they might also be won by the conduct of the wives. Because it is an unusual thing for a woman in our society today uh, to be in subjection to her husband. In fact, they're taking obey and so and all those kind of phrases even out of the marriage ceremonies because... They don't follow the Bible anymore, and what ministers used to use as a marriage ceremony, now people write their own. And they leave out a lot of things that God who instituted marriage says should be in there. Because they don't want that. So if you have an unconverted mate, God called you unconverted, you're not supposed to marry one. But if you had one when you came in, then uh, maybe... They can be impressed with, won over by, your own conduct in that you change and you become submissive and obedient and cooperative, all those things. While they behold your chaste conduct coupled with fear, they can, under, they can see that you fear God and want to obey Him and are doing your best to live by the words of God. And that can make an impression on people. And if you live by the words of God, you're going to be easier to live with as a mate. It's just automatic. Because you will have different attitudes than what you might have had previous to your conversion. He talks about our attitudes a little later on down here. And then he says, don't let it just be the outward beauty. That isn't what it's all about. You know, you can put on your hair and put on your face and put on your clothes just for the standpoint of trying to look physically good, but that's not what it is. It's the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. It doesn't matter how physically you take care of yourself, sooner or later that's going to fail, given time and years and uh, what you were at 20 will not be there at 80. It just it changes. So, what good did that do? <laughs> but if you're building character all along, that remains. As long as you've got a mind. And it remains until you lose your mind. Let's put it that way. People didn't used to lose their minds like they do now. People grew old and their minds were still sharp. Some still do, but... I think the percentage, not having seen a study, I think the percentage of people with Alzheimer's and, and minds that go away is much, much, much higher than it was 50 or 100 years ago because of the chemicals and junk and so on. But it's the inner self that he is interested in. And then he even says that, uses the example of Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him Lord, and that we ought to have the same respectful attitude toward our husband. 
I don't know that you need to call him Lord necessarily, but, uh, but have the respect there is the point. I mean, there are certain things in the Scripture that, in a way, are a cultural thing. Like we were talking about the other day, what, what's a holy kiss and how long is it, uh, as opposed to an unholy kiss? And it probably just pecks on the cheek like some cultures still do, but it's not an American culture. And we are uncomfortable with such a thing. Maybe opposite sex, a peck on the cheek, we're not too uncomfortable with. When it's same sex, well, at least for the last 20 years, it, it was uncomfortable. So, uh, maybe they call their husbands Lord back then, but we don't have the term normally in use today. But terms of respect is the principle in verse 7, likewise you husbands dwell with them according to knowledge. Be properly instructed and educated in how to treat a woman according to the laws and the ways of God. Giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. So you're not better than they are. You might be in charge. Uh, you might have some leadership qualities that God gave you that He did not intend women to have necessarily, but you're heirs together. That means you're equal in what is ahead for us. I have cousins, male and female, that are going to get a very small inheritance soon, and uh, they don't get less because they're females. <laughs> you know, we all we all get equal, and in the kingdom of God. Uh, eternal life and immortality are given out equally. Rewards are genderless as well. Male or female, depending on how they live, their crowns and their reward will be based on that, not on gender. Finally, instruction to everybody, and this is always and this is also in terms of our relationship to Christ up here at the end of chapter two. Likewise, wives, likewise husbands, and now all of you have the attitudes that we're talking about that Christ had toward us and toward the world. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be piteous or full of pity and courteous, just kind and treating each other well, treating each other good. Uh, all of these are synonymous together of right conduct and right attitudes toward other people. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. We don't have to get even. We don't have to get vengeance. Uh, if we get railed against, so what? Let it go. But contrary-wise, blessing. If they're evil toward you or railing at you, um, Try to have as good attitude toward them as you can. Knowing that you are there unto called, that you should inherit a blessing. So, if we're to inherit blessing, then we should be willing to bless others with the right kind of attitude toward them. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile not undercutting, not uh, plotting against others in any way. Uh, we live our lives straightforward, trying to do what God wants us to do and treat people right, 
And so we don't have agendas where we're trying to get someone in some way. That isn't the way God is. Uh, Protestantism has some of that in some sects where God's going to get you for that. They think God is there plotting and planning to get you uh, and harm you and punish you and uh, keep you out of his kingdom. And he keeps hellfire stoked up so it stays good and hot so he can put all these people that he got in there. It's just not his attitude whatsoever. And ours should not be that way either. That's, that's Satan's attitude. He's trying to get us and pull us uh, away from the inheritance that God has set for us. Well, when you see people that are hateful and contrary and despiteful and lying and so on, they're following their father the devil, and we don't want to be that way. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain from evil and no guile. I read that. Let him hate evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Peace doesn't just happen. War just happens. But peace has to be pursued. It's something you have to work at. It doesn't come naturally. Why? Because human nature is of itself selfish, carnal, uh, and therefore when we are selfish, it creates war. And we, we try to teach our kids that when they're just little guys, two and three years old, and they don't want to share their toys with brothers, sisters, cousins, or anybody. That's mine. And that creates war. <laughs> they, they don't find peace naturally among themselves because we are grasping, greedy, and selfish. And it, uh, maybe it's a little raw then, but it gets pretty raw with adults sometimes too. So go after peace. That's why Christ said, be peacemakers. It's not a natural not a natural condition. Peace is not. I, I think Satan influences animals to a great degree too. Because when you see animals together, do they always live at peace? Or are they always pushing at, butting one another? Uh, goat, sheep, cattle, uh, pawing the ground and butting one another and kicking each other off the feed? I, I spread the feed out with my animals so that the big ones don't kill all the little ones because they can't share. And then you see birds squabbling and fighting. Uh, you know, it's just, it's everywhere, even in nature. And things killing and eating each other. And it's just, it's not the way it's depicted in Isaiah 11. Christ is going to have to change an awful lot for everything to live in harmony and in peace. Pray for that day. I, I pray for the day that goat heads and foxtails and cactus and all of those are thornless and spineless and don't prick and stick. Uh, I mean, this, this didn't exist until they came out of the garden. It just wasn't there. And then suddenly it was. And we've been working by the sweat of our brow and under bad conditions ever since. Water's always a problem, and weeds are always a problem. We don't have many weeds right now because there's no water, but watch happens if it rains three, four days in a row. We'll have a crop of goat heads and tumbleweeds like you wouldn't believe. Because they know. 
I mean, there's that little three-pronged sticker that will not bud until it gets the right amount of rain so that it knows it can make another crop. And as soon as there's that much rain, boom, all those things germinate. And it's been designed that way. To me, it's a marvel, really. I mean, out in the desert, there can be seeds lay there for years and years and years. Hundreds of years, if need be. And as soon as they get the moisture, the desert blooms. That's all it takes. I don't think of this place as tropical or wet. But you know what? we got a crop of cattails growing on this place. Things you see back east in ponds. Right down here where we've had a water leak for 10, 12 years. They're, they're this high. The desert will bloom as a rose when conditions change and the rain, the moisture is here, and suddenly the weed seeds are going to disappear. I mean, it's only going to be good stuff for a thousand years. Do you pray for thy kingdom come? <laughs> The conditions we're living in here ought to make us do that. Verse 12, For the eyes of the Eternal are over the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. He hears not sinners, He says, but He opens His ears when people are righteous and pray righteous prayers. Now, I, that's, the, that's the mode I want to see God in, is I want Him to be all ears to our prayers. Because he has turned his face and his ears away from us over the last 30 years, basically. And it's time that that be changed. <clears throat> but the face of the Eternal is against them that do evil. And, and who is it, or he, that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Well, there are some evil people who just simply don't care... Uh, but generally speaking, if you're doing good, you're not going to be getting in trouble with too many people. That, that's a generality. I mean, if you take it to the extreme, Christ was the greatest follower of good that there ever was, and yet he got in all kinds of trouble with people. So he's making a general statement here that generally if you're doing good... Uh, you're not going to have near as much trouble with people as if you well if you're lying and stealing and uh, causing all kinds of problems yeah you're going to have problems with people but if you're doing good then it's rare that somebody will come in your door in the middle of the night and go to bed on your couch <laughs> there's a story behind that which we all chuckle about here but we may have to start locking our doors and taking our car keys in the house you know, we've, we've had it way easy here for a lot of years, uh, very relaxed, but we're getting more and more people around us now, and, and some of them are unscrupulous. And you can be following good, and evil can still happen, but as a general rule, you're going to have less trouble if you're doing what's good. But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, so he does amend that a bit and says, you might... Suffer for righteousness' sake. Happy are you, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. If you're doing what's right, and people want to persecute you and give you trouble anyway, 
then count that as joy because you're being persecuted for a proper and good reason. Not for something you did wrong, but somebody says they don't like righteousness. Well, okay, persecute me for that. But sanctify the eternal God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That doesn't mean you need to be necessarily, it's misinterpreted here sometimes to think that no matter what question somebody asks you, you've got to have the answer. No, what is, what is the reason of the hope that you have? The resurrection. So, you need to be able to answer to anything that has to do with the resurrection, the hope that lies within you, to be able to defend the fact that you have a future. Now, you may need to have some answers from Scripture and able to be able to do that, yes. But that isn't the main force of what's being said here. You have to have in your heart, in your mind, a deep, abiding belief in the resurrection and trust in the Father and the Son to get you there and to be able to answer for that hope. Here's why I have hope in that because I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and they said if I do, they're going to give me that. That's, that's what we have inside us. And they might imprison you as they did some of the prophets and the apostles. They might stone you. They might kill you in horrible ways, and they did back then. But what sustains you? Hope of the resurrection. You may kill my body, but you can't destroy that. And God wants us to be sure that we're willing to put our life on the line for the hope that lies within us. So it's that inside you that he's discussing here. Not just physical, not just intellectual answers to questions that might come up. And that is emphasized in the next verse. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. What gives us that lively hope? Our obedience to God's way. Because he says, if you obey me, I will give you the gift of eternal life. So it doesn't matter what evildoers say. They, they can put you down all they want, but that should not dampen your hope and your enthusiasm in God just because men put you down. That'll happen. <clears throat> Make sure your own conscience is clean. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So he's saying there also that you can be doing well, you can be being obedient, you can be walking in the right way, and God may will at times that you have adversity anyway. And he may allow people to do all kinds of things to you. You think Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and all those prophets and the apostles were doing wrong 
is the reason that God gave them all kinds of trials, troubles, horrible deaths? No. They were doing what was right. Here at the end, it says some of us will die, uh, be persecuted and martyred. Not for evil doing, but men will hate us because we're doing good. <clears throat> I mean, the last two are going to be killed, not for doing anything wrong, but because the world hates hearing the Word of God. That's all that there is to it. So, all adversity doesn't come as a result of sin. But it's better if you suffer to suffer for good than for bad. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, not his, ours. He, he suffered for doing good. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So he did no wrong, and yet he suffered more than any human being has ever suffered, so that we might be brought to God and have eternal life. And it was worth it to him to pay that price so that we could be saved. What manner of love is that? You, me, us. Not, not just... You, you, you can't uh, spiritualize it away and we have to take it personal. He died for me. He loved me that much. Because me is all of us. It isn't just in general, well, the world. No, we have to take it personal because we're all persons. And then how should we live based on what he did for me? Take that, I mean, me, you, you say me and I say me. Uh, it's, it's personal pronoun there. And that puts us under a great responsibility then that if he loved you and me that much, then we need to return that love. We can't take him for granted. And that was kind of at the basis of the Passover series, not to take our husband-to-be for granted. Uh that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, why did he bring that up? <coughs> it's kind of a strange uh, passage that uh, is a little difficult to understand. You have to kind of draw a picture there a little bit. He gives us a little insight into what was going on. But it was the same Spirit that he went and preached, apparently, to maybe demons who were in bondage during the days of Noah. And he's using that in the context of how much he loved us and gave himself for us. And it was that same spirit of love that he went and even preached to the demons. He would love to see them repent. I cannot imagine that God hates Satan and the demons. I never really thought about it, but considering this, it was by the same spirit and attitude that he went and preached to them that he was willing to die for us. And don't you think if Satan himself and the demons decided to repent 
that the angels in heaven wouldn't leap for joy and the Father and the Son would be ecstatic? All this trouble in the universe and all this trouble on this earth came as a result of their rebellion. And wouldn't he be happy to see that rebellion removed from the universe and not have to be removed into a dark corner and chained there and kept away from everybody? be a whole lot better if they'd straighten up. Aren't you that way with your kids sometimes? Well, let's see. Shall I kill you or are you going to straighten up? I mean, you're not going to kill them, but that that emotion comes. <laughs> you know, am I going to have to kill you? Anyway, he had that same attitude by which he preached to the spirits in prison which sometime were disobedient when the long-suffering of God or patience waited in the days of Noah. The society then was of violence and sin continually. All thought, all thinking was selfish and violent. And yet God waited patiently to destroy that violence until that ark got built. And He just waited. Now, the world is at about the same level today, and yet he's being patient. I, I have mixed emotions about that, don't you? I want to see the kingdom of God, and I want to see the millennium in peace, but I don't want to see six and a half billion people murdered and die horribly of famine and pestilence and eating each other and all the stuff that's going to go on on this earth. God doesn't want to see that either. That's not his mentality. So he waited back then patiently until everything was lined up right. And now he's waiting patiently until everything is lined up right. And we're waiting somewhat impatiently until everything is lined up right. Uh, we need to have the same attitude toward it that God does. Not that we don't long for and pray for the kingdom. But sometimes I pause in prayer and think, what am I asking that all this be unleashed in order to get there? And Christ did say, pray thy kingdom come in the sample prayer. Uh, he didn't mention all the destruction that's to come. So we are to, in our mind's eye, look beyond the horror to when things will get better and not be agitating for evil to come upon anybody. Even as Christ went and apparently patiently even preached to some of the demons, it appears here, during that period of time, hoping maybe that they would change. I don't know how much hope there is of that, and I don't let my mind go there because I don't want to begin to feel sympathy toward Satan. I don't, I don't want my mind to even begin to feel sorry for him. He's God's business, not my business. So I want to stay as far from him as I possibly can. Now, if God wants to deal with him and Christ wanted to preach to them, uh, he can handle that, but we're not equipped for it. So we need to stay as far from Satan and the demons as possible. So during those days when Noah was building the ark, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Same situation as here. Uh, population almost destroyed completely. Only eight saved out of that. It does appear a hundred million will be saved out of the end-time population. 
to repopulate the earth and get the millennium going. The like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us. Just like those eight were saved on the boat, uh, baptism saves us. But the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Christ. The earth, the people on the earth were baptized in the flood. And they were not brought up out of it. They drowned. Mercifully, God lets us, when we're baptized, be brought back out. Lest the minister hate you. You know, or something. But uh, uh, we're brought back out. It's a symbolic thing. Those people, though, are going to be brought back out of that baptism in the great white throne judgment. All those millions and millions of people, maybe billions, based on a thousand years of reproduction with nobody dying, living a thousand years or so, or nearly. Uh, they'll be in the second resurrection. So it's a temporary baptism of physical death, and then they'll come up. By the resurrection of Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. So the whole context here is being subject to Christ and us being in subjection to each other in the same way that we submit to Christ. That's, that's the whole context and the point he's trying to get across to us. And in other places, didn't Christ himself say that I will judge you according to how you treat others? So we need to treat others in the same way we would treat Christ. Peter's making a, a big issue of that here. Anyway, chapter 4, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh... Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. He was willing to suffer for us, and he says we ought to then have the attitude of being willing to suffer for each other. He set that example for us, and that's the mind we ought to have. For he that suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin. You learn from your mistakes. Hopefully you don't repeat them. Uh, sin and trouble can bite you and then you suffer and maybe you'll quit touching the stove <laughs> you know you'll you'll quit you'll quit that stuff that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men but to the will of God there comes a time when your mind changes where he, he tells us to be transformed reformed transformed our minds change from the way that they used to think. What else can men think other than the lusts of men, the lusts of the flesh, the various and sundry ways that selfishness is exposed? So instead of living just for me, and that's what our society is today, openly is a me society. Whatever I want for me is all that matters. You don't count, just me. He says, you don't think that way anymore. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have worked the will of the Gentiles when we did walk in lawlessness, lust, excess of alcohol, revelings, partying, and abominable idolatries. That's what the world operates on. 
wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. You, you don't think like they do. You don't act like they do. And therefore, if you're not like somebody, you don't tend to like them. You want them to be like you. You like to find friends that are a lot like you, that you have a lot in common with, for instance. And somebody that you don't relate to and thinks totally different from you, you don't want to be around that. You like you and you want somebody else to be like you. By nature. So, birds of a feather do flock together. (laughs) If they have this particular problem, uh, that's why the bar flies are in the bars. And then you have the, the thieves and murderers, and they tend to have gangs. They may not even go to the bars. But they get together and plot and plan how to steal and destroy and to kill. So, but the same types of peoples tend to get together. And therefore, if you think differently than the world around you, they're not going to tend to want to be with you. Uh, They'll think you're self-righteous and those... God people, or however they want to put it. Remember how it was when you first began to change and transform your mind to God's truth and your relatives and friends' reactions to you at that time. It was not a pretty situation. Probably still isn't. My son was just here, and we didn't talk about religion because we're on different pages. We had a good time together, enjoyed each other's company, and talked about things that we enjoy together, like camping and hunting and fishing and so so on. And we can get along and enjoy that. But we're thinking on totally different planes when it comes to God and religion. So, I don't go there. Because I know that it would begin to cause trouble. So we don't think alike, so just don't go there. Go where you can go. So, they think it's strange that you don't think like they do anymore. And they'll speak evil of you. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. So, you don't pay any attention to what they think of you. You pay attention to the one who judges and decides whether you're in the first resurrection or not. That's the one you think about. And you want to think like he thinks. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. We had the prophets of old that preached to Israel, and the hope was that they would obey God and they could be resurrected to life, and some in Hebrews 11 will be. But a lot of them didn't pay any attention, were rebellious. They'll be in the second resurrection, most of them, I think. He says, but realize the time you're living in. The end of all things is at hand. Be you therefore sober and watch to prayer. Be sober-minded, serious-minded, and pray a lot. Because we're right at the end and our judgment is near. And judgment is now on the house of God. It isn't on the world, but it's on you and me. He is daily weighing 
our thought process, our actions, our attitudes, and whether He wants what's in our heads in His kingdom or not. And that's scary, so pray. (laughs) And above all things, then, have fervent love among yourselves. I read that recently. For love shall cover the multitude of sins. We're not here to expose each other's sins. We're not here to find sin. We're not looking for sin. We're looking to help cover it out of love and compassion and concern for others because our attitude toward everybody should be that we want them in the kingdom of God. And therefore, since God forgives sins and Christ came to forgive the sins of the whole world, then we should be looking for ways to help mitigate or cover or remove sin from anybody where we find it. We don't... People misuse that. Well, you're just wanting to sweep sin under the rug. No, I don't want to sweep it under the rug. I want to sweep it under the blood of Christ. That's where sin needs to be swept. And under His blood, it's forgiven and forgotten. Under the carpet, somebody's going to flip the edge up someday and it'll be found again. Because that's the way people are. So, have fervent love and help cover the multitude of sins by what? Having the same mind Christ had where He was willing to pour out His blood to remove the sin that you and I have. And therefore, we ought to have the same mind to try to help others have their sin removed. That's why you pray for your enemies, is that God might ultimately save them. You know, I've got enemies. I have people that hate the fact that I breathe. But at times I do pray for them because I don't want them to miss out on the kingdom of God because they hate me. I want them to be in the kingdom of God, not in their present form, nor would I want to be in the kingdom of God in my present form. Because we're all sinners and come short of the glory of God. Do you think God would want this little congregation in His kingdom as we are? How would that help the universe? (laughs) You know? Still carnal, still selfish, still think sins, still do sins, make mistakes backbite each other, talk about others. He doesn't want that in his kingdom. He wants peace. Now you're trying to change and you're overcoming. And he says, if you do overcome, I'll grant you to be in my kingdom. Now that doesn't mean you will have overcome everything before you died. Otherwise, everybody in our little cemetery up here going to the lake of fire because they weren't perfect before they died. Not one of them. I knew them all. None had achieved perfection. And neither of any of us. But in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, when we're transformed, the carnal mind will go away and be replaced with a new spirit mind that is uplifting. And then God would want you in His kingdom. 
He doesn't want any of us like we are. The old just as I am, Lord, song doesn't work. Sorry. Got to be changed. And we can only change so much here on this earth. We can only get so much changed. But we need to be working on that and showing God that's the way we want to be. Uh, Verse 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. If you do something good for somebody, give them something. Don't begrudge it. And that includes having strings attached. There are some people who are just so generous, but there's always a string attached that they don't turn loose of. If I do this for you, someday you're going to have to somehow pay me back, one way or another. So there's a price to their gift. And a gift should come without price. And we may not expect something physical in return, but we want accolades and we want them to think well of us. And, and uh, sometimes we're just after attitude. We're trying to buy a friend with our giving. No. Uh As every man has received the gift, even so serve the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Christ gave the gift of His Holy Spirit freely. He's going to give eternal life freely. So He tells us to have the same attitude to give freely one to another. That's where the spirit of attitude and service without keeping score comes from. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Just keep them both busy doing things for others. And don't sit around and pat yourself on the back about all the good things you've done or feel the need to tell other people about all the fine service you've done. You take away your reward when you do that. You do. You take away your reward. It makes it worthless because it was done to pat yourself on the back to reward yourself about being so good. And as stated by your own mouth. No. You do good. You don't let your right hand know what your left is doing. And you don't brag in your own mind or to anybody else. You just keep doing it and let God reward. If you're looking for the reward or the accolade or the goodwill of men then that's your reward. God says that. That's all the reward you get for that, is the accolades of men. If you want accolades from God, then you do it quietly, without any strings attached, and you build treasure in heaven. Then you have a reward in heaven, not just a reward on earth with the goodwill of men. That's a tough one, because we all are selfish And we are self-serving in some way. And usually a human being, by nature, does want something in return for whatever he does for someone else. Some kind of reward. If it's just 
nothing more than goodwill. But often it's with even more nefarious ideas in mind. Verse 11, If any man speak, let him speak as the words of God. If any man serve, let him do it as of the ability which God gives, that God in all things may be glorified through Christ himself, <coughs> to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Who gave the most? Who did not have any strings attached? Christ gave himself totally willingly to us and expected nothing in return <coughs> other than us to accept what he did for us and do what he did. Have his same attitude toward people that he had toward us. So he did it for the good of everybody, not for his own good. Total sacrifice. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Well, I don't understand. Where did this trial come from? <coughs> Why did I deserve this? No, you're going to have trials. It's, he's told us in other places. We'll have them. And it's not strange. Did... Abraham, think in his own mind he might have to sacrifice Isaac? Yeah, he did. It was a trial of his faith. That was a pretty fiery one after they'd waited that long for a kid. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Fiery trials came on him that he, had, he hadn't deserved. But he had fiery trials that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. So that's the hope, is that what all He went through, He was resurrected, went back to His Father's throne, and has no more trials, no more tests, no more suffering, other than watching us suffer down here and wishing we would do different than we do. He still suffers along with us. But it's not his suffering in that sense anymore. And we can be exceeding glad when this life is finished and we can go on to our reward. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. We'll get evil spoken of us if we do good. But our glory will be in Christ. And we have to wait until that time comes. In the meantime, we have to put up with a lot of stuff. But do it patiently. But there's a warning here. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a gossip and busybody in other people's affairs. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Don't do things you would be ashamed of and suffer for. Uh, do good, and if they put you down for that, 
Well, that's their problem, not yours. You can glorify God for righteous persecution. For the time is come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. Church is being judged now, not later like the rest. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? You know, as righteous as you might be, you're still scarcely saved. Because salvation is not earned, and you don't deserve it because you were such a good person, there is a huge gap there with every one of us that has to be bridged by the sacrifice and the love of God. So it's a gift. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. He's faithful. He created us. He made us. He made us with a purpose. His purpose is that we be glorified and live forever in His kingdom and rule the whole universe with Him in total joy, peace, and happiness. That was His purpose. And we need to trust Him that He is going to work that salvation in us. If you trust that He is going to do it, then you're going to do your part in working at overcoming and growing so that He will confer that gift on you. So trust Him that He will see you through it because you can't trust yourself. Uh, None of us would make it if we were left to our own devices. And he has to work his salvation in us. Well, let's hit chapter 5. We have time. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So he says, I'm going to talk to those who are in charge. Uh, I witnessed what Christ went through. And I have also been a partaker in the glory that shall be revealed. Didn't he see Christ ascending into the heavens? Didn't he see him being glorified? So he was a partaker of that. He saw it. So he says, with that in mind, listen to what I have to say, because it was an eyewitness, I was right there. So he says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, or because you have to, or an attitude of, oh, well, I guess I better do this, but willingly, not for money, but of a ready mind, a desire and an attitude to serve, to give, to help, to help people in their quest for eternal life. That should be the attitude. Do all you can to help them accomplish what they're here for. Uh, Neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. So don't beat them, don't misuse them, don't abuse them, and don't rule them over much. He who is ruled least is ruled best. The less you have to do and they can do for themselves, the better off you are. 
just like with a child. It's better if he understands and controls his own emotions and actions than you having to always be putting the screws to him to make him do what he ought to do. Now, human beings, being of the nature as they are, do need a certain amount of supervision. Now, many of us experienced in Worldwide Church of God, depending on the local area and the minister, uh, we had a lot of spiritual abuse. People coming in, a minister coming into, or an elder coming into your house and checking your cupboards to be sure everything was the way it ought to be. There were literally examples of people doing that, which is beyond my comprehension. Checking up on you. Make sure you're doing everything, you know. How full's the dirty clothes hamper? None of your business. Leave my cupboards alone. Get out of my house until you can come back and talk to me and treat me civilly and lovingly and kindly. Unless you've done something that you're in trouble for, which sometimes happens. But, you know, I, I think I took it to an extreme the other direction here. I've had people here talk about how I'm just uh, lording it over them. Give me a break. I'm not going in their houses and checking everything. In fact, the other complaint is they didn't come to see them enough. Wasn't, you know, it wasn't, on the one hand, you're lording it over me and watching everything I do and making sure I do it the way you want it. That's what that attitude is. And the other is, well, you never come see me. How can, how can you do both? You know? How do you do both? Having an understanding of the way those things were in Worldwide, I have been very, very careful to try not to be Lord and Master over people here. It's been a conscious effort. And I think sometimes I went over into the other ditch and didn't do enough to keep things in line. Because people weren't keeping things in line themselves. So it's a delicate balance that has to be followed. And a lot of that has to do with ministerial personality. Because in some areas there was not a problem with that. In other areas there was a horrible problem with it. And so we all have our war stories. But the advice here is be careful, be more of an example, and don't go around like a drill sergeant uh, being lord and master over them. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. Now Christ doesn't interfere in our lives, does he? He lets us make our own decisions. Uh, he lets us live our lives. Now, if we call on Him, He will be as much involved in our lives as we invite Him to. Remember that story where the disciples were out in the boat and it was about to sink and He was literally going to walk on by? And they said, please come get in the boat with us. Oh, okay. They invited him into their lives. And that's what we have to do. Because he's not going to overlord. He, he will let us make our choices. We are free moral agents. And if we recognize we need him, 
and we call on Him and invite Him in, He will come. He first invited us, right? No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So, since He invited us first, should we not in turn invite Him? Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yes, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So, have respect for those who are older. Maybe they've learned something in the years of their lives, and maybe they could impart that to you. So, be subject, be willing to listen, be willing to learn. And God hates pride and gives pardon to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care on Him, for He cares for you. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. We're to, all of our needs, all our wants, all our cares, all of our frustrations, we take and lay on Him, knowing that He does care about us. That He's not going to blow us off. That He will sincerely listen to all our troubles, all our problems, all our frustrations. Doesn't mean He's going to solve them all right now for us. But He is the shoulder to go to. I mean, you know, you can go to a human person uh, for some solace, for some sympathy for some encouragement at times, and we all should do that and be able to do that. But ultimately, that's the one you go to because he's the one that has all the answers. We can encourage one another, but no one can encourage like he can. <clears throat> so then he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for customers, looking for victims, trying to destroy any he can. And you know who he's most after? Those who have the truth and the Spirit of God. Those are the ones he really, really wants. The world, rest of the world's pretty well in his hand. He's got them deceived. He's deceived the whole world. So we're his target. And when God, we're the ones he accuses. Do you think he accuses, well, I started to name a couple of our politicians, but I better not. Do you think he's going up there accusing them? No, they're in his pocket. He accuses us. We're the names that go before God in his accusations. Not the sinners of the world. It's us He wants to destroy. So then it says there in Revelation 12, when He is cast down for the last time, who does He immediately go after? The woman, the church. They're the ones He's been accusing, and they're the ones He'll come after. And those that make it to the safety of Zion and are protected will be there and He can't get to them, but He's going to go out then and go after the 90% remnant of her seed and try to kill all of them off. Because their little light will still be shining out there in this sea of humanity. And he knows where they are. And he will go after them. And try to have them all martyred. And he's going to be pretty successful at it. 
you go into the tribulation, you will very, very likely die there. I won't say 100%, but I'll bet it's pretty close to it. Because Satan will be after you. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Emmanuel, after that you have suffered a while, make you mature, establish, strengthen, and settle you. We are going to have to suffer a while. It's part of the deal. It's part of the plan. It's part of the boot camp. Do you realize that those officers in the military get together and draw up plans and procedures that they will use to try to harass, to discourage, to frustrate all those new recruits as much as they possibly can? Those drill sergeants are taught to be mean and nasty for the purpose of weeding out the weak and making the strong stronger. And God is the same way in a sense. Now, he's not... That drill sergeant isn't there to be mean in order to destroy a recruit. He wants as many to come out of that class as possible as good soldiers having withstood all the trouble that could be laid on them. So the objective of the officers is to turn these people into war machines that will be successful. And do they ever put them through it? God's doing the same with us. He has our best interests in mind but he's going to put us through it down here and let us suffer so that we may be made strong and then be made mature and established, strengthened, and settled. That's what this boot camp on earth is about. I don't know how long boot camp lasts in the military, but it's roughly 70 years here. <laughs> fairly, fairly long. But it started out at about 1,000, and then he's... He just cut it to 500 and then 250 and then down to 70 finally. He says, I, yeah, I don't think they need to go through their paces a thousand years. That's, that's pretty long. Let's cut her back some. They can suffer enough in 70 years to get where we, to, to become what we want them to become. So that we can give them eternal life. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen, or so be it. He who has put us here to suffer as Christ suffered, give him glory and honor and praise because he chastens every son whom he loves. He puts us through trouble, trials, tribulations because he loves us and he wants it to transform us and make us better people, more patient, more loving, more kind, more compassionate, more empathetic, so that we can deal with people of the world who are just as bad or worse than we were as their teachers in the world tomorrow. Got to have good soldiers. So he puts us through our paces. 
So recognize that He loves you and you're going through adversity out of love so that you may become what you ought to be. Give Him glory, dominion forever. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother to you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. We have the truth. The world has a false grace based on non-obedience. We have the truth. We have the right kind of grace, the true grace of God, and we stand in it, knowing that we can be forgiven and knowing that we need to show our faith by our works. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, salutes you, and so does Marcus, my son. Greet you one another with a kiss of love. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Emmanuel. Amen. So, there's First Peter for you. An awful lot of hope, a lot of instruction, and I hope a lot of encouragement and inspiration that we shoulder the burdens that we have and be able to move forward and be strengthened and established, uh, settled in what we're doing and looking forward to the kingdom of God.